Turn with me to the first chapter in the book of Revelation. As a preacher this evening, I feel shut in to one verse particularly. I had hoped to have preached on another text, but when the Lord constrains and gives you a text, then the preacher must obey. And you'll find the words that I'm handling this evening in chapter 1 and verses 17 and 18. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Numbers of Christians find it difficult to read and understand the book of Revelation. But I believe increasingly that the key to the book is found here in chapter 1. The more we familiarize ourselves with this chapter, the more we understand what our Lord is saying and who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the better we'll be able to understand chapters 2 to 22. Because all that is said here in chapter 1 is unfolded in the rest of the book of Revelation. So we really need to reflect, meditate, really saturate ourselves in chapter 1 and look carefully at what our Lord Jesus Christ is saying and at the person he is. So chapter 1 is a, a key chapter. And of course, the theme is our Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's all about the Lord Jesus and his exaltation. He died for us, but he rose again. He ascended to heaven victoriously. He's in session at the right hand of God the Father. All authority in heaven and earth is given to him. He rules the universe for the sake of the church. He is the head of all things and head of the church. He is the absolute Lord in the world. As Christians, we tend to forget this. And we need to catch this glimpse of the glory, the sovereignty, the power, the purpose of our Lord Jesus Christ. I've also been impressed and moved reading stories and accounts of people who've been converted through reading or hearing a message from Revelation chapter 1. I recall an elderly person being convicted through reading some of these verses. I think of a 19-year-old young man, Christian parents, knowing Christian doctrine well, agreeing to the uh, Reformed faith, and then going into the world, mixing with laborers, going drinking and living, living it up socially. Still going to church, unsaved. 
And then in God's providence, he was given a paper. The text of, that I'm preaching on was, was there, brief notes in a sermon. And almost immediately, he was convicted. And what he believed suddenly became alive to him. He saw the glory of Christ. He was in prayer for a long time, I gather, and he was converted that day. When he went to his workmates the next day, they couldn't get over the change in his life. So I'm encouraged reading this chapter for that reason too. And I think of these people converted through some of these verses. And that can happen to you this evening. Or as a Christian, you can be quickened and refreshed, revived and given great encouragement. And so we look at words which really tell us a great deal about our Lord Jesus Christ. The chapter refers to a real historical situation. It's not imaginary. It really happened in the year 96 AD. John, the apostle, the remaining apostle, had been exiled by the Roman authorities to the Isle of Patmos of Turkey, a volcanic island full of rocks. And those enemies, or people deemed to be enemies of the Roman state, were exiled there. And the Apostle John was considered to be an enemy. He didn't agree to saying that Caesar is Lord. He didn't join in with many of the Roman cultural festivals. And so he was the leader of churches. And he was sent to this island of Patmos. He himself was in his 90s. He was involved, more than likely, in slave labor in a quarry. He was concerned for the churches. And there he was on this small island, much smaller than Anglesey. And in this island, in his circumstances, the Lord speaks to him. You can imagine the kind of surprise he had the encouragement given. He's concerned for the churches, what's happening. There was intense persecution at this time of Christian churches in many countries. What will happen to them? And so, in 96 AD, which was the first day of the week, John, a prisoner on the island, for the testimony of Jesus Christ. And the Lord comes unexpectedly often to his people. When we least expect it, he can come by the Spirit and in the Word and deal with us. And so it was, we, we read in, in these verses. In verse 9, it says, I was on the island called Patmos, for the word of God, suffering, being persecuted because of the gospel and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. 
There's fairly common agreement amongst commentators that probably there were not many, if any, other Christians there. If there were, they may have had meetings for worship. We, we can't be sure. But it was the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day is always important for God's people. The Lord has given means of grace by which he speaks to his people, feeds them. The word is preached. The Spirit of God is upon the word. The church meets together. And the Lord often, amongst them, works powerfully. It seems in this situation that the Lord worked with relation to the Apostle John. And he says to us in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. What this really means is that he was enlivened, he was quickened. And how lovely it is that the Spirit of God does this for God's people. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a Christian without the Spirit. There are degrees of the power and influences of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And there are days and situations when the Spirit of God works powerfully. He will open the Word, make it more clear, impress it upon our minds and hearts. And His presence can become more real. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And all that we can know times when we too are quickened, enlivened, and in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And on this occasion, John hears behind him a loud voice as of a trumpet. The trumpet would have reminded him of Mount Sinai, when the people of Israel had come out of Egypt and were traveling towards the Promised Land. They reached Mount Sinai, where God met with Moses and his people. And we're told that as the people stood at the foot of the, the mountain, the Lord descended on the mountain in a fire and it was covered in smoke. The whole mountain quaked. There was a blast of a trumpet became, becoming louder and louder and louder. And the Lord came down on the top of the mountain, called Mount Moses to, to go up to the top to meet him. And God was speaking to Moses. And here it is, God the Son, the Lord Jesus, the exalted Saviour, who is speaking to John the Apostle. So he turns round in a moment, but he hears a voice saying, I'm Alpha and the Omega. I'm eternal. I span the centuries. He repeats this again in verse 17. John is told to write down the message for the, the seven churches, representative of all Christian churches in the world throughout history. There's encouragement here. There's hope for the church. There's judgment for the unbelieving world. And John is to write these things down. Then John tells us very simply that Hearing this voice, he turned in verse 12 to see the voice that spoke with me. And now he will tell us what he saw and the impact 
of this sight upon him. I want you to notice, first of all, this evening, the, the awesome glory of the exalted Christ. He is awesome. As God the Son, he came, humbled himself, became obedient to the death of the cross. The Father highly exalted him. He received a name above every other name. He was raised from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's there at the right hand of the Father in absolute power. He is awesome. And John is given just a brief glimpse in the imagery of the Old Testament of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But before seeing the glory of Christ, John sees seven golden lampstands, reminding us of Zechariah's vision in chapter 4. The golden lampstand with a bowl on the top and the seven lamps and the seven pipes, the Holy Spirit feeding, supplying grace and power to the church. So the picture is that of the, the church of Christ, God's believing people. And we are told, in the midst stands one like the Son of Man. Today the church is generally weak, discouraged. There are some encouragements, thankfully. Some churches are growing, and we should expect church growth. But there's a lot of discouragement. There's a great deal of opposition. But John has been reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, stands in the church with his people. He's the Son of Man. Take us back to Daniel 7. Remember the vision that Daniel had of the Ancient of Days. God the Father and the Son of Man coming to him and being given the kingdoms of this world. It's a title that only the Lord Jesus used in the Gospels. He used it in relation to his mission to save, to seek and to save that which was lost. He used it to describe his sufferings. But he used it also to describe his coming in glory in the future. The Son of Man will be coming on the clouds of heaven, and he will wind up the affairs of the world History will come to an end. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Christ is in his church. He's with his people. Sadly, like in Laodicea, the Lord tells the church that he's knocking. It's like he's standing on the edge of the church. The church is lukewarm, does not love him. And so he is calling the church to repent, to turn, to love him, to honour him. And so often the Lord Jesus is on the, the fringe of our lives and our church. Biblically, the Lord is in the church with his people. And we are to respect that, to appreciate it, we are, we are to enjoy it, and we are to depend on the Lord Jesus Christ 
with his people. So the church, being indwelt by Christ in the Spirit, is full of light because of him. Then John sees more of his glory. He sees an ankle-length robe with a golden sash around him. It's recalling the, the high priest in the Old Testament scripture. A picture of majesty, it would impress seeing the high priest in such majestic, colourful clothing. But Jesus Christ is the, the great high priest. He doesn't offer an animal sacrifice, he offers himself. He's done that. He died. He was raised again, he has ascended. No other sacrifice is needed. John is reminded, therefore, of the, the majesty, the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, where he intercedes, prays for us, rules, leads the church. Then he notices the white hair of the Lord. Imagery again, but pointing in Daniel 7-9 to the, the holiness, the purity of God the Father and God the Holy God the Son. His garment was white as snow, the hair like pure wool. Complete purity. And the Christ who indwells the church is no less pure and holy as he was in his days on earth. We can be slick, superficial. The Lord Jesus Christ with us whom we pray to, we read about, we preach, we teach. He's holy. We need to reverence him and respect him. We ought to run away from sin. We need to strive to be more like him and to please him. But then John sees that his eyes are like a flaming fire. I've known one or two Christian leaders I've been afraid to meet them, initially at least. Their eyes were so penetrating, I felt they were looking right through me. But the Lord Jesus Christ is omnipotent and omniscient. He penetrates below the surface. You can't hide anything from him as a church or as an individual. He knows all. We, we have to be real with him and honest then John sees his feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. Speaking of his power and judgment, and in chapters 6 onwards, right to the end, the exalted head is going to use his power. He will tread on the enemies of the gospel. He will bring down nations. He will uphold the church. His feet are like fine brass. We need confidence in our exalted Lord Jesus Christ. When we pray, he is able, able to do exceedingly above anything we can imagine. He can change lives, he can change situations, he can change churches, communities, nations. And Revelation illustrates this in the later chapters. So his voice, John says, is of the sound of many waters. 
Patmos was an ideal location for this. You would hear the waves pounding on the rocks in the storms. Tremendous noise. And the voice of the Lord Jesus Christ is powerful, resistible. When God is at work, you cannot resist him. We speak of irresistible grace. That's why we need to pray for unbelievers. Pray for believers, but when the Lord works, it's irresistible. Unbelievers who fight against God, who reject the gospel, are often changed remarkably. Sometimes against their will, they're brought low. You cannot resist the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to ask ourselves whether we are the Lord's this evening or whether he will be our enemy. But in his hand he holds seven stars in his right hand, the the leaders of the church. And he uses a two-edged sword, fighting his enemies with the word of God and the Holy Spirit. John says his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Reminds me of Saul of Tarsus' conversion in Acts chapter 9. Remember, traveling to Damascus with others to arrest and imprison Christians. And the Lord Jesus speaks from heaven. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He sees this great light. He's dazzled. Falls to the ground. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah saw a glimpse of the majesty and the glory of God. We read in Matthew, John 12, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's overwhelmed. Woe is me. I'm a man full of sin. In Revelation chapter 6, there's a picture of the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ and the wrath of the Lamb and the kings and the leaders call to the mountains to fall on them because they're afraid to to meet the the Lamb in his wrath. Our great need today is to see something of the glory, the beauty, the majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our view of him is puny. We dishonour him. We need to open up the scriptures. We need to see him with the eyes of faith. We need to hold on to him and to love him and serve him. But secondly, notice that John is given reassurance concerning the exalted Christ. He knew the facts that the Lord is telling him here. But the Lord repeats and reassures him of what he knows. It's always a need for us as Christians to be reminded, to be reassured of something we believe and hold to dearly. And so this glorious person places his right hand on John, that hand that had been so busy during his earthly ministry. And the Lord says to John, don't be afraid. Even Christians sometimes, when the Lord manifests something of his glory, his presence, can be fearful, can be nervous. 
were not used to the supernatural. And when the Lord comes near, happens in times of revival particularly, there's a fear of God. People can tremble. Christians tremble. They're awed by the presence of the Lord. But John is told not to be afraid. He's the Savior, of course, who loves his people. He died for them. He's on the side of his church. He it is who gives grace now to John in this situation. As if he's being told, look, don't dwell on the bad things. Don't think of your circumstances. This must be hard for you. Don't worry about the churches. Look at me. Trust me. Don't be afraid. We need to see who is in absolute control of the church and of the world. If any of you as believers are afraid this evening, our Lord is telling you, don't be afraid. Look at him. So the threefold assurance is given to the Apostle John. He's told again, I am the first and the last. I am, of course, reminding us of the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the name given to Moses to share with his people, the name of which is, it represents his eternity, his covenant faithfulness, his power. He keeps his, faith, his promises. He's independent. He's uh, eternal. All depends on him. He keeps his promises. He loves his people. There are no problems for, for Yahweh, Jehovah. Without, with God, nothing is impossible. So I am, and I am the first. I'm eternal. I created the universe with the Father and the Holy Spirit. I hold the universe together by him. All things consist, says Paul in Colossians. If the Lord Jesus withheld his power, the universe would disintegrate. He's the first. He sustains the universe. He's working out a purpose of God. His purposes will not fail. And I'm the last. And through history, the Lord is at work covering his purpose. The last day will come when he will come down from heaven personally, in glory, visibly. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess him to be Lord. And he'll consummate the purposes of God. Final judgment. Resurrection, the general resurrection. The dead, unbelievers, but believers first. We should be glorified. And eventually will be the new heavens and new earth wherein dwells righteousness. I'm the first and the last. I'm going to see the purpose of God fulfilled right to the very end. This would have encouraged John. But notice secondly, our Lord says, I'm he who lives and was dead and I'm alive forevermore. The three facts are related inseparably. His death is in the center of it, related to the resurrection. 
And the Lord comes very close to John at this point. He tells John, I am he who, who lives. John knew that. He was a witness of the resurrection. Remember the story in John 20? I, I, I love the story. Mary Magdalene goes to the sepulchre very early. It's dark. The stone has been rolled away. She doesn't know what's happened. She's in despair. She's prepared spices with the other women. She's going to embalm the body of the Lord. She goes and tells the disciples, as the angel told her. And Peter and John run to the sepulchre to see. And John tells us that he ran faster than Peter. He was a sprinter. Peter goes into the sepulchre and looks carefully. And then John looks. And they saw and they believed. He saw the resurrection appearances of the Lord Jesus. So John knew that the Lord Jesus was alive. And then our Lord says, I was dead. And again, John was a witness of the crucifixion and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was at the arrest and the trial. He knew what the crowds had chosen when Pilate gave the choice. He saw the crucifixion, the stripes. He heard the mocking he heard the words of the Lord Jesus. John was a witness to these things. He knew that the Lord was dying there in the place of sinners. He died. Historically, he died in his human nature. He'd atoned for sin. Wasn't a job half done. He'd taken the invoices of God's law, which spells our debts to him. And he nailed these invoices to the cross and triumphed over the powers of evil. John witnessed the death of the Lord Jesus. And yet the encouragement is that our Lord goes on to sell him and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That's reassuring. He was raised from the dead. He had died. But our Lord Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. He is as alive today as he was when he spoke to the Apostle John. I'm alive forevermore until the end of the history of the world through eternity. Remember how Stephen was stoned to death by the Jews. He saw the heaven opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Our Lord is alive forevermore. Peter was probably crucified upside down. Paul was possibly executed. But I am alive forevermore. Never in the history of the church has there been such extensive persecution of Christians as today. Many, many countries, Christians, are being persecuted. Many are being martyred. Many in prison. 
many being tortured. We, we read regularly of fanatics and fundamentalists going into churches sometimes in Africa, gunning down Christians in a prayer meeting or a preaching service, or taking a pastor and pulling him out from the family. And there his wife and three children are. And they shoot the pastor if he doesn't deny Christ. And the pastor refuses. He's shot and there he lies dead. And this is going on extensively in the world. In many countries. In northeast India, the suffering and the persecution is intense. We need to remember our, our brethren and our sisters who are suffering for the faith. But I am alive forevermore, and even though we do not understand it, the Lord is working his purpose. But notice finally, the Lord Jesus Christ tells John that he is the key holder. I have the keys of death and of hell. It's another reason why we should be in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's got the keys, the keys of death. He decides how long we live and what we do with our lives. This is why unbelievers need to be careful. Their lives are not their own. There's one who controls the world and our lives. Death can come suddenly, unexpectedly. In my ministry over the years, I've known children to die suddenly. I remember a five-year-old being knocked down by a car, dying. Older children, perhaps in their teens. In the public house we bought in my stake, crowded with young people, over 2,000 of them in the valley, many of them coming in each evening. Remember a couple, a boy and a girl, they were courting, about early 20s. They had a, an attractive motorbike. They thought the world of it. They heard the gospel. And one night I was talking to them both. You, you need to hear Christ's word. You need to trust in Christ. Oh, we'll do it later on. It was a few months later that they died in a motorbike accident. A car hit them. Life is uncertain. Death comes suddenly. We need to be ready to meet God as our judge. I've got the keys. I wonder if we believe this. And I've got the keys of Hades. What happens after death? Heaven, hell, I've got the keys. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so what you have in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 onwards is an opening up of what our Lord is saying here. Remember in chapter 4, we see the, the throne room in heaven a dazzling, awesome scene. God on the throne. 
And the angels and the believers there are worshipping, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. You are worthy to receive glory and honour and power. In chapter 5, we have this picture continuing. And God the Father is there on the throne and there's a scroll in his hand, the scroll representing God's purposes for history, what he's going to do in the world and with the world. The question is spoken, who is worthy to open the scroll and loose the seals? No angel is worthy, no man is worthy. And John cries. Then he told, don't weep. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seven seals. Perhaps it's a picture of, of, of the ascension, what's happened. And then John saw, in the midst of the throne stood a lamb as it had been slain. And he came from the hand of God the Father. He took the scroll. And the entire church in heaven joined in a new song, You Are Worthy. He has the scroll, he's opening the seals of it, year by year, decade by decade. You dip into chapter 6, you read of martyrs being killed for the gospel. And those in heaven asking God for vengeance. When would they be judged? And God says, more or less, not yet. There are people to be saved. Chapter 7, we see why the delay is. God decides there are martyrs there dressed in white in glory. They've come out of the tribulation. Chapter 8, you see the prayers of saints are being used by God. Fire falls on the earth. There are temporal judgments, turbulence in creation. The Lord is ruling. He's opening the seals. Chapter 10, you see what lies behind the affairs of the world. You see God's office, God's control room. And God is working through the prayers of his people, through the witness of his people, through the preaching of his people. In chapter 11, you see what God did to the unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. Chapter 12, you see this cosmic battle between God and Satan. It's evil. The battle rages today. Satan is evil host. Hating God, hating Christ, hating the gospel, hating God's people. We're not fighting flesh and blood, we're fighting evil spirits. But the Lord is in control. In chapter 13, we have the enemy identified. A dreadful beast comes out of the sea. In chapter 14, you begin to see the, the battle raging. But God and his hosts are far more powerful. And we can go on chapter by chapter. By chapter 20, you see the great white throne and him whose face, the earth and the heaven, and they flee from him. And then Hades is cast into the lake of fire with unbelievers. Then chapters 21 and 22, so delightful. Picture of the new heavens and the new earth. 
The scrolls have almost completed. The purpose of God complete. The church glorified. Christ is Lord. He's the key. He is our Savior, our Lord. He's the head of our church. And our privilege is to trust him, to love him, to get to know him better, and to long for him to work powerfully in our midst. Amen.